Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. We're going to do something a bit different this week with the launch of our first inaugural Summer Book Club series with my good friend, Oren Kessler, who will be joining us to talk about his terrific new book titled Palestine 1936, The Great Revolt and the Roots of the Middle East Conflict. Oren is a journalist and analyst based in Tel Aviv and in the past was the deputy research director at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society, and a correspondent and editor at the Jerusalem Post and Haaretz, respectively. We're hoping to do more of these book talk interviews over the next couple months. That would, of course, entail me, you know, actually reading books. So fingers crossed. And you'll hear that my conversation with Oren was, despite the events having taken place decades ago, completely relevant to literally everything that's happening today. But first, a few thoughts from me. So just FYI, we recorded Oren last Thursday, and I'm recording this intro Tuesday evening. It looked for a little while in recent weeks, that we may, stress may, have been blessed with a relatively quiet summer. That thought, if it was ever true, is, as the pros say, no longer operative. Here in Israel, we're now on the cusp of two big crises slash issues. One, the judicial overhaul, and two, the West Bank. So let's start with a judicial overhaul. As we all know, the Netanyahu government was forced to hit pause on the scheme of theirs in late March, and since then, until very recently, talks had been ongoing between the coalition and opposition under the auspices of President Isaac Herzog in order to find a quote-unquote compromise. Those talks collapsed, unsurprisingly, about two weeks ago. The reasons why are less important... They have to do with the committee that appoints judges. But what is important is that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, caving once again to the hardliners in his coalition, now seems intent on reintroducing two, maybe three aspects of the judicial overhaul with plans to pass the relevant legislation in this Knesset summer session, i.e. by the end of July. This is now the danger that the government, having learned its lesson from earlier this year, is now going to implement the quote-unquote salami slicing strategy, basically to begin passing their judicial overhaul, not in one big bombastic chunk, like they were trying earlier this year, but through little slices, here a bit, there a bit, and basically dare, dare the protest movement to recreate the mass popular mobilization and demos and disruptions of earlier this year. It's a real test for the protest movement, whether they can recreate and recapture once again that energy and, yes, power. In recent days, they've definitely begun trying and mobilizing, but you can imagine what will happen if the protest movement can't. The government will simply continue to pass these slices, one after the other after the other. And now the second big issue slash crisis happening right now is obviously the West Bank. There's a lot to say about this, and we will say more about this in the coming weeks. But as I'm sure most listeners are aware, the past week has seen a near daily spate of attacks by Israeli settlers against Palestinian civilians in West Bank villages. This came after a bloody terror attack outside of the Ali settlement last week, which claimed the lives of four Israeli civilians, uh, including teenagers. But regardless, there can be no justification for these actions by the settlers themselves, basically pogroms, uh, which Israel's security chiefs rightly called terrorism. No more, no less. Uh, and there can be no justification, we should add, for the fact that the Israeli authorities haven't been able to get a grip on this phenomenon. Uh, 
The security forces, whether the IDF, the Shin Bet, the police, say they're taking this seriously, but their bosses in the government, from the prime minister on down, are decidedly taking this less seriously. For days, Netanyahu himself didn't even mention, let alone condemn, these acts of Jewish terror. Not one word. And he and his ministers have publicly undermined IDF efforts to go track down Jewish terror suspects, raising concerns on their part that it may have entailed the use of, quote-unquote, excessive force by the security forces against civilians. Israeli civilians, mind you, not Palestinian civilians. So to recap, in the West Bank right now, we have ongoing terror attacks against Israelis, likely more aggressive counterterror operations by the IDF in places like the Janine refugee camp, growing and endemic violence and terror by Israelis against Palestinians, and massive settlement construction being promoted by the Netanyahu government. A quiet summer this will not be, sadly. Let's get to Oren Kessler. Hi, Oren. Welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. Thank you so much for having me, Neri. Uh, it's really our pleasure. So you already know this, but it's worth mentioning. You're our inaugural Summer Book Club Series guest this summer. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of uh, no pressure, but this is really a topic near and dear to this podcast's heart. Uh, your new book, as mentioned, is called Palestine 1936, The Great Revolt and the Roots of the Middle East Conflict, which has just come out to worldwide acclaim, I think it's fair to say. Uh, I finished it the other day and thought it was really terrific. Uh, all of us who have studied Middle East history or the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict and were aware of the events of this critical time period, uh, but then read this book and you really take us into... Uh, the details in a very engaging and accessible way. Uh, at certain moments, I was felt I was back in the pre-state period uh, for both oh, wow. for both good or bad. Uh, it depends. But a lot of the That's things. That's a high compliment. I appreciate. Yeah, that. yeah. Uh, we'll get into the details and the characters in just a second. <laughs> but uh, really, a lot of the things you describe in the book uh, could have happened or been said yesterday, um, mm. especially given the events of of yesterday. So I wanted to start here, Oren. Why the specific time period? Why this topic? Out of all the Israel-related or Israel-adjacent stories to focus on and write a book about? Uh, so first of all, thank you so much for your, your kind words. I, I really do appreciate that. Um, I, I, I very much wanted to put the reader in the time period, so I, I really appreciate you saying that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I want to uh, preemptively ask your listeners forgiveness if I sound a bit nasal. I'm just coming off of a pretty nasty virus. Um, so why why this topic? Well, I had the feeling about when I first started working on this way back in 2017, I, for some reason, had the somewhat um, masochistic urge to write a book about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But I realized very quickly that uh, that particular bookshelf of all things Arab-Israeli was already creaking under very heavy weight. And uh, it seemed that everything had already been done until I hit upon this particular period, this particular chapter in the history of, of this land and of the conflict. And it struck me that it was just a really underexplored, underinvestigated uh, chapter, namely the Arab revolt, the great Arab revolt of 1936 to 39 and everything that emanated from it. And that was it, that it was a really formative and, and decisive and, and seminal period, certainly for the Arabs of this country, but equally for the, for the Jews 
uh, of this country, for Jewish history, Israeli history, for the history of the conflict and attempts to resolve the conflict. And, and, and one that was really populated by a lot of really fascinating, compelling and complex characters on all three sides. So Jewish, Arab and, and British. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, basically that's, that's, uh, the short version. I, I, I identified a, a gap in the literature or what seemed to be a, a gap in the literature because there was really, uh, there was no general interest book in English on this on this period, on this, on this revolt and everything surrounding it. There were some very, uh, there were a few academic books, some academic articles. There were, uh, a, a, a couple of books in Hebrew and a little bit in Arabic, but for whatever reason, this, uh, this particular period just hasn't, hasn't gotten its due. So that's what I, the, the, the gap I tried to fill. Yeah. Uh, like we said, very accessible. Um, and while we all have maybe studied academic, uh, works about this time period. Uh, this is a very different proposition, your book. Um, and also maybe we'll, we're kind of giving everything away right at the start, but the great Arab revolt of 1936 to 1939 is really the first intifada. While there is a, a first intifada in the late eighties, early nineties, this was arguably the, the first intifada. So there's actually a book in in Hebrew called about this revolt called Intifada Harishona, the first intifada. Um, and that's really the the framing that I that I give here. There oftentimes when I start telling people about my book and my project, they they cut me off and they say, "Oh, you mean the Hebron, right?" And um, and no, the 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 this the core the of my of the, exactly nineteen twenty nine exactly the Hebron massacre of nineteen twenty nine in Hebron, Tzfat, and a few other places, uh, and in in which one hundred thirty three Jews were were killed over several days and. The core of my book, of course, begins seven years after that in 1936. The, the Hebron massacre was uh, an outburst of very grim and gruesome uh, attacks and riots and terrorism. But I, I, I believe and I, I kind of write in the book that that's that's all they were. It, they were riots. They were terrorism, but they did not represent a concerted, sustained nationalist uprising and intifada. And uh, the, the first time we saw anything like that was indeed in, in 1936. Okay. Um, so we're going to get into the 1920s, uh, also in just a second. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I jumped but, ahead. No, no. Uh, it's all good. But <laughs> before we get to that, uh, I wanted to spend a minute just talking about the process, uh, your process in writing this book, uh, serious piece of work, you know, research, archival work, personal letters, uh, on all sides, on all three sides, like you said, uh, what was that like? Yeah. So, uh, so as I mentioned earlier, it is, I, I, I want this to be a book that will be as, engaging and interesting and compelling to the average, the lay reader as to, as to experts and, and scholars. I want it to be an engaging read, but there's also, I, I would like to think it's backed up by, by serious research. There are 50 pages of, of, of footnotes in this book. Um, and I used, I don't know how many archives in on three different continents. So uh, I started writing this book in Washington, DC in 2017, as mentioned. And then, and there's, you know, there's, I do appreciate the question because I think a lot of people don't necessarily spend that much time thinking about how we authors and how we scholars put these <laughs> these books uh, together and what a what an arduous process it can be. But um, it's it, I started you know these days a lot of archival material depending on the archive is available online. So for mm-hmm. example, the the Israeli National Archives have been really on the cutting edge in terms of scanning huge amounts of their material, which can be accessed from from anywhere. 
And so uh, that material was available to me from from my apartment in Washington, D.C. Uh, British cabinet papers are all freely available. Um, but there, you at a certain point, you hit a certain limit in what you can do online. And I had to make some research trips to to the U.K. and here. Uh, but yeah, I, I extensively use the Israeli National Archives, the British National Archives, Haganah Archives, Jabotinsky Archives, uh, you, you, you name it. And um, mm-hmm. there's, there's, of course, there is no Palestinian archive, but there's a fair amount of uh, Arabic material and material from the Arab side in both the, Israel, the various Israeli and British uh, archives. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, was, uh, it can be... It can sometimes be a little bit tedious going through piles and piles of letters and cables and telegrams. But when you find that one, that one gem, it uh, it oftentimes it, it can feel like it was all worth it. Yeah, uh, and like you said, it gives this book and these types of books really the the detail and the color that really make it uh, engaging, especially the characters that you uh, bring to the fore, uh, both Jewish, Arab, and and British, uh, and you know, looking at what they wrote in real time via, via cable or personal letter to, uh, to their mothers in one, in one instance. <laughs> um, by the way, something that, I, that caught my eye while reading the book, uh, is, is it true that the British government only declassified, uh, certain documents relating to the Peel Commission, which again, we'll get into in a second, uh, but they only declassified it in 2017, basically Indeed. eight decades yeah. after the fact. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, these are great questions, Mary. I'm, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. So one of the most fascinating things that I, that I encountered in my research was this treasure trove of secret testimonies from the Peel Commission of 1937, the commission that, as I'm sure we'll discuss, first kind of famously put the two-state solution on on the table, a two-state solution, including a, a Jewish state. Um, and so this was a, a royal commission of inquiry sent to, to Palestine to examine the grievances of, particularly of the Arabs who had launched this revolt, but 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 also Jewish grievances. Uh, if, and um, and the, these secret testimonies were basically meant, there were, there were dozens of public testimonies, but the secret testimonies uh, were meant to be destroyed. That was the understanding of both those who testified and and the commissioners themselves, but a one very forward-thinking British bureaucrat, the, the secretary of the uh, of this commission, stowed them away and wrote in the margins that you know this this um, something to the effect of these will be of tremendous interest to the historian uh, of the distant future, the histor- in, if you know the historian interested in the history of the Jewish people uh, in in the remote future. So we're in that remote future, and those testimonies were uh, indeed classified for eighty years, and then very quietly declassified in twenty seventeen. Uh, wow. And so, really, other than uh, a scholar by the name of Layla Parsons in Canada who wrote a couple of articles based on a, a few of these testimonies. Almost nobody, as far as I can tell, had had looked at these. And so uh, these include testimonies by people like David Lloyd George, who was prime minister of uh, of Britain during ni- in 1917 when the Balfour Declaration was given. And he's asked, he's asked uh, point blank, why, why did you give this declaration? And he and he uh, I won't spoil it, but there's, I, I wrote an article called 
uh, a dangerous people to quarrel with, which is a, a quote from uh, Lloyd George about the Jews in which he explains why they gave this particular declaration. The, 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 okay, I will spoil it. The short version <laughs> is that is that uh, Lloyd George had a uh, had a either anti-Semitic or philo-Semitic um, uh, uh, feelings toward toward the Jews, and he. He basically says that the Jews are extremely powerful in in Russia and in the United States, and at that point in World War One, we needed their support. That's the, mm. the the short the short version. But uh, I encourage your listeners to to check out that article. There's also uh, a testimony there by Herbert Samuel, who was the very first High Commissioner of Palestine and uh, also a Jew and a Zionist. And he's asked why did he appoint Amin al Husseini, the notorious now infamous Hajj Amin al Husseini as Grand Mufti at the start of the mandate. Uh, and I won't spoil any of that because I'm actually writing an article about that now, but it's just, it's really fascinating stuff. And it's extremely candid because again, both the, 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 both, both the witnesses, the people testifying and the commissioners expected that no one would ever see these testimonies. So they're, they're really fascinating stuff. Uh, that is fascinating that it was, uh, kept under uh, wraps for eight, eight decades, I suppose, mm. because they still felt it was so sensitive. The Apparently, yeah. There, I mean, there are some, there are some, uh, Winston Churchill is one of the, one of the witnesses, for example, he says some fairly bold things about Jews and Arabs. That's right. And, 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 uh, and so, yeah, they, they, uh, apparently they, the, they, the British considered this to be too, um, too sensitive to, to release, uh, uh, any earlier than that. 80 years is a long time to keep something classified. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, just uh, in terms of the history in the past, still rever reverberating in the present, uh, Herbert Samuel, uh, that's still the name of the Tel Aviv Corniche, the boardwalk on the it Mediterranean. It is. It is. Yeah. And it's, it's now the name of a hotel chain, which I find slightly <laughs> tacky, but no, nobody, nobody asked me. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's get down to the brass tacks and down to the details of, of the story. Um, seems to me that, uh, like we said, the context and the backstory to the great revolt of 1936 to 39 really began in the early twenties, if not in the year 1920 itself. So is it fair to say that this was really the, the time period and really the start of what became the Israeli Palestinian conflict? Although uh, I guess both sides didn't really call themselves that, at the time, so um, so essentially, the uh, we can do a sort of a quick uh, historical table setting here. In, in November 1917, Britain issues its famous Balfour Declaration, expressing its uh, support for a quote unquote Jewish national home in Palestine. Uh, this is, of course, in the midst of World War One. There's a certain amount of strategic ambiguity there. What is a national home? Is that a state? Uh, is it less than a state? What is what does it mean to be in Palestine? Is that all of Palestine? What are the borders mm -hmm. of Palestine? Uh, nonetheless, this this declaration is is given. About a year later, Britain wins the war. Uh, the Allies win the war, and the mandate uh, goes to the the newly born League of Nations gives the Palestine mandate to Britain, the country that had uh, issued this declaration, and through through some very effective. Uh, Zionist lobbying. Not only is Britain handed the mandate, but the, the mandate text, the kind of constitution of the mandate, enshrines the Balfour Declaration with the with the imprimatur of the 
international community of the time, namely the League of Nations. So the League of Nations kind of grants Britain the mandate, and right there at the top of the mandate text, it says that Britain shall facilitate Jewish immigration and quote close settlement of the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so uh, so the mandate begins, and Britain's military occupation turns into a civilian one. Uh, a civilian administration and Herbert Samuel comes and he's the first uh, high commissioner. But as tends to happen in this country, there are outbursts of, of violence uh, in 1920, 1921, and then famously and infamously, as we discussed in 1929. Um, and, uh, and essentially s- uh, several times during that period, the British, call commission after, after every outburst of violence the british call commissions of inquiry and in several of these they consider whether what what they're doing in palestine and whether the whole thing has to be dramatically um downsized but in every case uh they the often with some very again effective zionist lobbying particularly after 1929 the british kind of go back to the initial formula of again facilitating jewish immigration and and and, and settlement uh, and uh, basically, the the kind of immediate preview to the Arab revolt is well. I should say I should I should probably mention the context in Europe, which is essential here. And this is something I really try to do in the book, which is sort of bounce back and forth between mm-hmm. the Palestine situation and the situation in Europe, because they really are uh, inextricably linked. Certainly for for the Jews and 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 indeed for the for for, for the British. Um, yeah, right. So, they're not. They're yeah. not- they're not operating in a vacuum here uh, on the edge of the Mediterranean. Exactly. It's all wound up in global politics. Exactly. Exactly right. So so Hitler comes to power in June, in January 1933, uh, and there are other anti-Semitic movements and governments on the rise across Europe, and Jewish immigration to this land is just really turbocharged. And in the first half of the 1930s, the Jewish population here doubles. Uh, so, uh, so, and it's, uh, it's, threatening to reach 30% of the population in 1935. And um, so about 300,000 out of the total population of, of a million. And there's in, uh, in late 1935, there's a, a preacher, a jihadi preacher whose name will probably be familiar to some of your listeners. It's Ezzadin al-Qassam. Mm-hmm. Uh, Qassam has, of course, lent his name to the Hamas armed wing and to some of the uh, earliest homemade rockets that Hamas fires at Israel, and Qassam was a uh, a jihadi preacher originally from Syria, and he was uh, preaching his very hardline militant version of Islam in in a, in a mosque in Haifa, and uh, his followers committed a few sporadic attacks against against the British targets and and Jewish targets, and they kill a Jewish policeman by the name of Moshe Rosenfeld. Uh, and now Qassam is a wanted man because he's killed a member of the Palestine police. And long story short, a manhunt ensues. The British kill him in what is now the Northern West Bank. And he really becomes the first sort of um, martyr in the Palestinian Arab pantheon. He's kind of the proto-martyr. Uh, and um, and his followers, a few months later, take revenge on a uh, Jewish vehicle uh, driving through uh, the Tulkaram Nablus area, which even today is a center of mm-hmm. militancy and Arab national Palestinian nationalism. Uh, and they, they, they ambush this car, they kill two uh, innocent Jews. And really, in many ways, those are the opening shots of the Arab revolt. And this is in April 1936. 
And wasn't it Ben Gurion or maybe another senior Zionist leader who who recognized the fact that Kassam was really yes. this galvanizing and national figure for the first time, really, for the Palestinian Arabs? Absolutely. So, so Ben Gurion writes uh, in his diary, I believe. Uh, he, he recognizes the significance of it immediately, of, of Kassam's death. Uh, and he writes, uh, this is the first time that the Arabs have seen a man willing to die for an idea or for an ideal. And he predicted that there would be hundreds or even thousands more uh, like him. And uh, yes, he was here. Right. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Um, so before we get into the uh, nuts and bolts of the revolt, one thing that struck me about the 1920s period was uh, just the level of detail, um, really, especially about the intercommunal violence, the riots, right? You have one chapter that's called just, a, uh, I think, a bloody day in Jaffa or mm. something to that effect, where really it's these two peoples, you know, Jews and Arabs living in Jaffa and many other places um, in the land, uh, essentially squaring off against each other and the British having to come in and and quell the unrest. And there's, you know, tit for tat uh, uh, attacks and, you know, what we call now uh, the cycle of violence. Um, and also another thing that struck me in the 1920s, which will uh, sound unfortunately very familiar to uh, our, our modern day listeners, uh, the issue of the Western Wall in Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa and these kind of rumors spreading like wildfire that, uh, that Al-Aqsa is in danger. And this really also uh, uh, pouring, you know, gasoline on these intercommunal tensions. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are the, the riots uh, that hit Palestine in 1921, for example, were centered in, in Jaffa. Uh, Jaffa really was a, a center of kind of uh, Arab nationalism in this, in this period. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, and in, uh, in the, the Western wall uh, issue that you mentioned in 1928, 29 really the, the those those very gruesome riots that i that i mentioned in 1929 the 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 entire uh pretext for them was this idea that the that uh, al-aqsa is in danger and this was something that was led by the mufti by hajamin al-husseini uh starting in 1929 he had this kind of al-aqsa campaign in which he he was very much leading this uh, this idea, this this you call it propaganda or call it, uh, but he was he was basically spreading this idea that Al Aqsa is in danger, that the Jews want to rebuild the temple, uh, and um, and indeed there were, for example, there were there were marches in nineteen twenty eight twenty nine by uh, by revisionist right wing Zionist groups, like the, the march, the, the wall is ours. For example, there was a whole mm -hmm. like a Western wall defense, uh, brigade. I can't remember the exact, uh, name of this, this group of Jews who, so it was all kind of interlinked. The Jews felt, of course, the Western wall was much different than it is today. They, nowadays we think of the Western wall plaza and at this, in this, in this period, the Western wall is kind of an alley and it's all very tight. Um, but there was absolutely this, there was a feeling by the Jews that they were unable to do something as simple as blowing a shofar on high holidays at the wall. Uh, and there was f the feeling by the Arabs that the Jews are now claiming the Western Wall and soon it'll be the Temple Mount itself, Al-Aqsa itself. So that that's the immediate background to the, the grim scenes of 1929. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, uh, 
this will uh, sound very familiar to people even as recently as uh, the May 2021 mm-hmm. uh, intercommunal riots all across Israel and right. also stemming from events uh, at Al-Aqsa and in, in and around the old city of Jerusalem. So uh, again, I found that uh, quite quite remarkable and quite chilling, actually, mm. just to, mm-hmm. to read. You know, you you give like uh, front pages of newspaper newspaper headlines, mm-hmm. and it, it it really is just you know uh, could have been could have been yesterday, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, so the revolt, as you mentioned, kicks off uh, in 1936, and your your contention is really that uh, these followers of uh, Isadil and Kassam. Uh, really fired, quote unquote, the first shots of of the Great Revolt, um, and what happens afterwards? How do they? How does it become uh, eventually a, a truly national, if not regional, movement? So that was uh, April fifteenth, nineteen thirty six. That 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 attack by Qassam's followers occurred, and then four days later is the the bloody day in Jaffa that that you mentioned. That's how the press. Uh, of the the Hebrew press at the time called it. So this is April nineteenth, nineteen thirty six, and uh, sixteen Jews were killed in in Jaffa and South Tel Aviv in in multiple different incidents. It's just an outburst of of violence, um, and it's a few days after that. So the revolt really begins with in, in violence and bloodshed. But just a few days after that. Um, basically, there's uh, there are prominent Arabs in in Nablus who declare a strike. And then the Mufti, not wanting to miss the opportunity, kind of asserts his leadership over this whole outburst of, of, of violence and of political demands. He asserts his leadership and says, uh, he declares that uh, the strike will be nationwide, that the Arabs will be boycotting you know, the, the, the Jewish economy, the, the British economy completely uh, until three demands are met, namely uh, a complete stoppage to Jewish immigration a ban on land sales because very many prominent and wealthy Arab landowners were selling land to Jews at very inflated prices, even while they railed against the the practice in public. And then the third demand was to create a legislative assembly that would accurately reflect the demographics of the country, which were still about 70% uh, Arab. And so he announces the creation of this thing called the Arab Higher Committee, which naturally he uh, declares that he's the head of, and, and he announces that this strike will be uh, will be beginning. So, and the strike lasts for six months, and this is really uh, a source of tremendous pride for the Arabs of Palestine. This is even to this day. This is one of the longest general strikes anywhere in history, and um, this is the period, for example, that Tel Aviv port opens because the the port workers at Jaffa port, the Arab port workers there, are on strike, and the Jews uh, plead with the British to allow. Uh, them to open their own port, and and the British agree. And Ben Gurion is simply uh, euphoric. He writes that it's the second Balfour Declaration that now the Jews have an outlet to to the world. Uh, and so, and so this strike lasts for 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 six months, and it bears fruit because the the British send that famous Royal Commission, the Peel Commission, to to examine uh, grievances. So once that commission is established and sent over, the Arabs kind of call off. Uh, their revolt, they su- or they suspend it at least pending the result of the of the commission, and that's kind of the first six month phase of the revolt. I see. So the British uh, are so alarmed by the unrest uh, of this uh, quasi colony of uh, inside their mandate that they send uh, this high level uh, commission of inquiry to figure out what's happening, and so they they set up shop in in Jerusalem. 
Exactly. And this is, this is again, a royal commission. So it's, it's the British Empire's highest form of inquiry. It's acting in the name of the king. In this case, the very short-lived King Edward VIII, who famously <laughs> abdicates shortly after establishing the Peel Commission. So the king who appoints the Peel Commission is not the king who receives the report. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so, yeah, so they, they set up shop in uh, Jerusalem. They are staying at the King David Hotel, but the hearings... Uh, occur at what is now the Waldorf Astoria, but at the time was the Palace Hotel, which actually had been built by the Mufti, uh, but using Jewish architects. And so the Jewish architects uh, told the Zionist leadership, they gave them the plans of the building and the Zionists were able to bug all of the committee proceedings, which is kind of a funny little detail. But mm-hmm. uh, but the, the commission begins, they hold dozens and dozens of sessions with uh, with British administrators here, with prominent uh, Jews and Zionists, the Mufti boycotts the proceedings because it hasn't agreed to his three demands. But at the 11th hour, the Mufti calls off the boycott and he himself testifies and a few other prominent Arabs do as well. And the commission goes back to England to write its report. And it's a it's a really fascinating report. It's a 400-page report, and if anyone has the entire month of July free, I, I strongly suggest they read it because it's it's really a good a good read. It's got a lot of content. Beach read. It's a, <laughs> it is indeed exactly, uh, but it's mainly remembered by history for its last 12, 15 pages in which it proposes a it proposes partitioning the land, partitioning the land between the river and the sea into a Jewish state and an Arab state. And again, this is the first time that uh, the notion of a Jewish state, with everything that means, appears on the international agenda in any real way. Uh, and so a two-state solution, including a Jewish state, not just a Jewish national home as the Balfour Declaration promised, but a Jewish state with full control of immigration, with the Jewish army. Um, and so this is, and it's a small state. I'm sure many of your listeners have, have seen the map that it produces. It's basically mm-hmm. the Jewish part of it is essentially the coast from about Rehovot up um, and then the Jezreel Valley and, and the Galilee. And remember, at this time, the Galilee is, is almost entirely Arab. So that's seen as a huge gift to the Jews. And then Jerusalem is, is kind of remains within a mandate. Uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, the holy area, the holiest parts of the country remain within uh, the mandate. But this is um, this prompts a, a raucous debate among the Zionist leadership. But the two people uh, who matter most are Ben-Gurion, who's the leader of the Jewish agency and is really the, the clear leader of the Jews of Eretz Israel at this time, the Yishuv, as we say in Hebrew, the, the pre-state community here, uh, and Chaim Beitzman, the head of the World Zionist Organization. These are the people whose word matters most, and both of them, even while they sort of played coy, uh, were ecstatic about this proposition. They realized that this wouldn't be the final word, territorially speaking, but that it's a foothold, uh, and that it would give the Jews control over immigration, uh, and that it had to be seized with uh, both hands. And so they carry the day, and the Jews offer their tentative acceptance of this proposal. And uh, the Arabs, with with uh, following the Mufti's example, led by the Mufti, uh, reject this proposition out of hand. The Mufti issues a statement saying it's a degradation, a humiliation, uh, and uh, and he'll and just just unequivocally uh, rejecting it. So this is summer 1937 that this report is uh, is released. 
Yeah, uh, and not for the first time. Uh, Palestinians um, re- reject, uh, as we know, um, and the Jews uh, play the diplomatic game, uh, say yes, uh, sometimes yes, but uh, again, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not uh, not anything that, <laughs> that has stopped happening uh, in, in more recent years. Okay, we'll be right back after this brief message. Israel Policy Forum works to advance the vision of Israel as a secure, Jewish, and democratic state by strengthening support for a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We provide constructive policy analysis and pragmatic policy recommendations, produce credible research reports, deliver thoughtful and nuanced commentary, build engaging and innovative educational content, and create informational video content covering critical issues. We're trusted as a reliable resource in Washington and the Jewish community. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of two states, watch our new series of short videos on how the judicial overhaul threatens Israel's status as a secure, Jewish, and democratic state, read the Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau's weekly article on current events, read our timely written explainers on packing critical issues, explore our 50 Steps Before the Deal policy resource, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. Links to all of these resources can be found in the description of this podcast. If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible, informational, and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today to ensure that Israel Policy Forum's work continues to have an impact. Donate now at ipf.li slash support the pod or at the support the show link in the show notes. By the way, I found it fascinating that this whole idea for uh, partition for two states comes, uh, as your book says, from a British irrigation expert called (laughs) Douglas Gordon Harris. Yeah, this is another this is another thing that I found in those secret testimonies. It's really amazing. It was basically so one of the members of commission is an Oxford Don by the name of Reginald Coupland, who's not much of a Middle East uh, expert. He's he's more of an expert on Africa and colonial history. But nonetheless, he uh, he starts to um, really be taken by this idea of either cantonization or even or something more drastic like uh, like partition, which these ideas have been floating around here and there, but have never really been given form. Um, and uh, so he gets he becomes really taken by this idea, and he basically starts looking for a, a British administrator here who can validate. Uh, this proposal, and he finds one in this man Douglas uh, G. Harris, who's mostly lost to history. I've, I was able to find one photo, one photo of this guy. Uh, he was an irrigation advisor. Had spent a lot of time in India, like so many Palestine officials, and um, he basically he's called in, and uh, Harris says, "Okay, uh, let me produce this map that I've been working on." And he basically just sketches out, and this is like a, a half page of testimony uh, in these in in, this, in these secret uh, testimony. It's a half page of text in which he basically lays out these momentous historic history changing proposals. Of, he basically says, "Let me produce a map. Here's here's the Jewish area. Here's the Arab area. Uh, Jerusalem remains with us. What do you think?" I mean, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but it's it's really th- sort of that quick, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, 
and the commissioner is led by Copeland to say, okay, and um, so what does this mean? Does this mean uh, a Jewish army? He goes, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and it's 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 remarkable. Uh, okay. True British colonial uh, yeah, fashion. It's yeah. it's really it's 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 one sentence on the Jewish army. It's it's remarkable. Uh, and then and then and then they bring in a man by the name of Lewis Andrews, who I don't know if this actually made it into the book, but uh, maybe it's in, buried in one of the footnotes somewhere. But Lewis Andrews is the acting commissioner of of the Galilee, and he is has very good Arabic and actually very good Hebrew, which was very unusual. The Hebrew part of it was a very unusual among British administrators, and and he was a sort of a Christian uh, Zionist, uh, which again was unusual among British administrators. And they bring him in as kind of their liaison with with the Arabs, and they and they ask him if there are any uh, prominent Arabs who would agree to this kind of thing. And he said yes. He said the mayor of Jerusalem has said that he's uh, on board with this. Some other prominent Arabs have 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 indicated that as well. Uh, and so, and this is again, this is like a quarter page of testimony. So basically, Copeland, without getting too much in the weeds here, but Copeland brings in these two administrators. They give him, he talks to them for a few minutes. They say, yeah, 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 this will work. And then he's, <laughs> and then uh, the commission, and this is in the very last days of the commission stay here. They go back to to the UK, and really, Copeland is the main. Uh, author of this report. And he's another person who's kind of lost to history, but in many ways, Copeland, with the help of these two administrators, kind of invent the two-state solution. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. So the commission issues its report, uh, but then what happens? Uh, the revolt obviously continues. Right. So the Mufti has rejected it out of hand. And then just a few months after um, after the report is released, this Lewis Andrews, who I just mentioned, is assassinated while he on right. in Nazareth on his forty first birthday while attending church. Um, and I have a special sympathy for Mr. Andrews because I myself just turned forty one last month. Uh, so he's he's assassinated, and he is the by far the highest level British official to be assassinated in not just in the revolt but in the entire Palestinian Palestine mandate. And uh, so the British really are now determined to wrestle this revolt to the ground. And if they if they were kind of uh, not applying their full force in the first phase of the revolt, now they're determined to do so. But they have a real problem in that the war clouds are gathering over Europe. It seems to be a question of when and not if war will erupt with Hitler. And they simply can't afford to send significant manpower to this corner of empire. They need to keep them in Europe. So what do they do? And this is one of the greatest legacies of the revolt, certainly from a Jewish and Israeli perspective. What they do is they accede to a longstanding Jewish Zionist demand to or, or request to uh, arm and train the Jews in large numbers. And that's exactly what happens. Some 15 or 20,000 Jews join what is called the Jewish supernumerary police, and they are armed and trained and often paid by the British government, uh, the Palestine government, that is. But it's clear to everyone that they're ultimately answerable to the Haganah, namely the main Jewish armed force of the period led by Ben-Gurion and company. Uh, and it's uh, really in this period that the Haganah goes from a, a, a network of a, a loose network of glorified night watchmen to really the seed of a, a Jewish Army. This is also the period of Ord Wingate, the famous Ord Wingate and the Special Night Squads. Mm. And Wingate was 
uh, also a, a, he was a, a, a Christian Zionist and he was a, but he was also, he was a military genius, uh, by, by almost all accounts and a very eccentric man, but he was deployed here as part of the, as part of the British, uh, military. And he really creates these, these mixed units, mixed Jewish and British units, which really they operate at night and they go on the offensive against these Arab, Arab armed groups. And this is really the first sort of Jewish special forces, if you like. Uh, and this is really the seed of the future IDF officer corps. This, these, these units include people like Moshe Dayan, Igal Alon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so really just militarily, the, the Jewish community is, is transformed by this, by this, uh, period. And really this is one of those instances in which, again, led by Ben Gurion, the, the Zionist leadership is able to turn adversity into advantage. And despite the very serious toll in blood, and it was very serious. So 500 Jews were killed in this revolt. These are really huge numbers. These are numbers we wouldn't see until the second intifada. Uh, so despite that very painful toll, uh, the Jews make tremendous gains uh, throughout this period. While, while at this point, it's the Arabs who are starting to really suffer from British countermeasures and from a certain amount of infighting that begins in the second phase of the revolt. And so really the, the, the Jews are starting to have kind of the upper hand and to really make tremendous gains, uh, through this revolt at this period. Yeah. Uh, and it also struck me just talking about British, uh, countermeasures and, and British military strategy to try and put down this insurgency, how, um, familiar a lot of these, uh, methods sound even today. Uh, so things like military courts, home demolitions, uh, curfews, um, you know, even air power at a certain extent, uh, mm. rudimentary air power back then, uh, mm. you know, mass arrests, uh, a lot of them still, uh, still being used today. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, let's not forget that the state of Israel inherited, uh, a huge body of British law when, when the Palestine mandate became much of the Palestine mandate became the state of Israel in 1948. Uh, and, um, you know, many of the most controversial methods and even the legal basis thereof that the IDF uses today had their roots in the British army in Palestine in this period. So things like administrative detention, namely detention without specific charges. This was an emergency regulation put in place in this period, which which the IDF still, as I understand it, still, still appeals to. Uh, home demolitions, as you mentioned, 2,000 homes were demolished throughout this revolt. And, and in a much more, and collective punishment was just part of the game at this, uh, in this period, the British made no, no bones about it. It was, you know, if a, if a roadside bomb was, was laid on the highway near a certain village, the British would come into the village. They would, they would take out the Mukhtar, the village headman. They would ask him, okay, who did it? And if he couldn't tell them, they would just start demolishing houses. Um, so, uh, you know, at least a hundred Arabs were hanged in this period. There are a number of, uh, a number of incidents that could only be described as atrocities, not a huge number, but there are several, uh, instances that, um, that would qualify as, as, as atrocities in this period. Um, and yeah, checkpoints, curfews, there's even a, something called the Northern fence, the Northern wall, the te- uh, also known as the Tegart wall. I was uh, just about to mention yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which has, which is built along the Northern border with Lebanon because, uh, the Mufti in the second phase, when the second phase gets going, once Lewis Andrews is assassinated, the Mufti flees to uh, Jaffa port, 
dressed as a Bedouin or as a woman. I happen to believe he was dressed as a, as a Bedouin. And, uh, and he ends up in, in Beirut and he, he's, he sets up shop in Beirut and he's kind of leading the revolt from, from, from exile and militants are coming down from, from Lebanon. And so the British built this, this security barrier, which has obvious parallels to the West Bank security barrier that, that we know today. Um, and, yeah. and you can still see remnants of it on the old Northern road, uh, on the Israel Lebanon border. Right. And by the way, all these, uh, uh, as they call it here in Israel, uh, Tagart, Tagart yeah, forts. Yeah, exactly. Tagart. Yeah, uh, right. So the Mukata in Ramallah is an old uh, Tagart fort. Uh, yeah. A lot of the police stations all across Israel are still these forts that were built during the Great Revolt. Uh, exactly. Sir, Sir Charles Tagart was a, a security expert who was brought over from India. And, uh, and his main proposal was to build this wall and these pillboxes and fortresses across the country. There were dozens and dozens built, many of which uh, still still dot the landscape, yeah. Right. Um, so ultimately, the British uh, successfully put down the revolt with a combination, I suppose, of military force and, uh, shall we say, changes in diplomacy, changes on the, on the global stage. Is that... Is that fair to say that it was a combination of two things? Uh, and one more thing, which is mm. uh, just the, the convulsion of, of Arab infighting that takes place in the second phase of this revolt. I mean, the, it, much, of, much of it led by the Mufti from exile and, and his henchmen. But really, there were the, the, the initial unity of the revolt uh, on the Arab side behind the Mufti's leadership, at least the, the appearance of unity, where, where rival families... Uh, you know, urban and rural, rich and poor, all kind of united in a, in a single purpose against a common foe and under the ostensible leadership of the Mufti, that initial unity really dissolves or explodes in, in, uh, in the second phase of the revolt. And you just see just a huge amount of, of, of score settling and, you know, the Mufti, uh, anyone who kind of dares uh, veer from the lie, the, the very intransigent line that the Mufti has set, uh, tends to find himself in trouble or, or dead. Uh, and there's just the, really the Arab social fabric is really just torn by this revolt. And the revolt, I write in the book that the revolt to crush Zionism really ends up crushing the Arabs themselves. Because what what first you have the British very heavy-handed counterinsurgency measures. There, there's something like five to eight thousand Arabs killed in this revolt. So wow. five five hundred Jews, roughly, let's say roughly two hundred fifty British servicemen, but five at least five, maybe eight thousand Arabs. A certain amount of them uh, at British hands, but but very very many of them at at Arab hands. Uh, and so, and you know, the economy is gutted by this boycott that I mentioned. You've got the the leadership in exile. You've got huge uh, refugee waves. People fleeing the violence this is another precursor to 1948. Uh, huge, you know, maybe tens of thousands of people, particularly from the upper echelon of Arab society, fleeing to to Lebanon, Syria. Uh, and so, you know, again, a hundred people hanged, thousands of people in prison, huge amounts of weapons confiscated. So really one of the arguments that I make in this book is that the final reckoning, the final showdown between Jews and Arabs, uh, in this country, in this land, the civil war that breaks out in 1940, late 1947, um, before the Arab invasion of, of May, 1948, that war is really won by one side, namely the Jews and lost by another almost 10 years in advance that, that the, the, the Arabs never really recover, uh, from 
this revolt, whereas the Jews go from strength to strength, militarily, uh, territorially. There's not a single settlement that's uh, abandoned during the revolt, but rather dozens spring up around the country. Economically, major strides are made uh, in terms of just creating a self-sufficient Jewish economy that's not dependent on the Arabs or on, or on the British. Uh, demographically, in all these ways, even psychologically, uh, in all these ways, the, the Jews have their kind of springboard for a state ready almost in 1939 as the Second World War begins. But but to just address the, the diplomatic uh, issue that you brought up, mm-hmm. it's it's you're right to note that um, it was it was initially, you know, military measures that really uh, put the revolt sort of on the ropes. But the British, as 1938 turns to 1939, the British are very much determined to finally put it to bed, uh, the, put, put the revolt down. And so this is, of course, the era of appeasement. The prime minister of uh, Britain at this in this period is Neville Chamberlain. And appeasement is not only the term used by critics of this policy, like Winston Churchill, but it's essentially government policy. Uh, uh, it's stated government policy, uh, almost, in terms of relations with fascist, uh, not to Germany, fascist Italy, but also in, in the Middle East. And I have, I've, you know, read over endless minutes and cabinet sessions, and they talk quite openly about, quote, appeasing Arab and Muslim opinion, the British ahead, ahead of a potential world war. The British were particularly worried about the large Muslim population in India, hmm. which of course, in this period includes Pakistan and, and Bangladesh with their very large Muslim populations. And they were concerned that, uh, that if the Muslims of India were angry about Palestine, that they would not be on board with the Allied war effort, and that would pose serious problems. So I think nowadays we have the tendency to think that you know Middle East policy is driven by by oil, for example. In this period, it was really uh, Muslim rather than Arab. It was Muslim public opinion uh, primarily that really drove um, British thinking, and they so they basically. Long story, relatively short, they call a conference, you know, the British have an endless appetite for uh, committees, conferences and commissions. So they, also they, not not they, unique to the past 30 years. And uh, and so they call something called they, they call the Jews and the Arabs to St. James's Palace in London. Uh, for the first time, they include the Arabs of the surrounding countries. This is also a landmark in the regionalization of the conflict. Until now, it had been seen. Palestine had been seen as a question for the Jews of the world and the Arabs of Palestine. It, that was, but this with this with this St. James's conference, they bring in the leaders of Iraq and Egypt and Syria. Um, the first Middle East peace conference. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and the but the, the the result of this conference is very is is basically a foregone conclusion. Uh, the, the 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 goal is really to appease um, Arab and Muslim opinion over Palestine. And, and again, you know, I've, I've read the kind of the minutes, uh, before the conference and during the conference, and even before the conference, the British intend to go quite far in the direction of, uh, Arab demands, but they end up going even much, much further than they, than they intended to. And basically the result is the famous or infamous white paper of, uh, summer, spring, summer, 1939, in which, uh, Jewish immigration is, cut to 75,000 total over five years. So I should mention that in 1935 alone, 60,000 Jews came to this land. So now we're talking about 75,000 total over five years. And this is mid 1939. This is obviously a a crucial 
and very dangerous time for the Jews of Europe. They're desperate to leave. Uh, but that upper limit is set, after which uh, any further Jewish immigration will be contingent on Arab consent. And of course, it was clear to all three sides that that consent would not be forthcoming. So really, this is seen by the Jews and their supporters as as a huge uh, betrayal, as a reneging, not just on the Peel partition plan of two years earlier, but really on the whole Balfour project. And, um, you know, it's 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 probably uh, an overstatement to say that uh, this white paper doomed six million Jews to 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 the gas chambers. I think that is an overstatement. But I think it's you know a plausible reading of history to wonder if maybe, you know, hundreds of thousands could perhaps have been saved had. Well, first of all, had that two state solution gone through in 1937 and had that uh, or had that white paper not been passed in 1939. So this is, again, one of these just history-changing legacies of this revolt. Uh, the infamous uh, 1939 white paper. Um, we could spend another hour uh, delving into the Great Revolt, but the last thing I wanted to bring up with you, Oren, uh, in this book, you're obviously a historian, but you're also a journalist and an analyst of our uh, current period. So I wanted just to pick your brain about the the implications of uh, the period in your book that you lay out in your book about uh, for our present day. And it really struck me reading the book and then afterwards thinking about it that uh, the revolt that you describe and this basically the civil war that's happening between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River uh, between these two national movements. Uh, I don't know. It, it was really a, a rebuke uh, just going through this history and being reminded of this history uh, about this thesis that we hear more and more of these days about, uh, well, we just need one state uh, between the Mediterranean mm -hmm. and the Jordan uh, and that these these two peoples, these two national movements can can simply coexist uh, in the same piece of land. Uh, I think your book uh, is a good reminder that uh, this conflict has been going on now with uh, with good reason for over 100 years. Uh, and the other thing that it struck me uh, after reading the book was that, uh, you know, a reminder that a two state solution, basically partition, uh, is really the only solution to this conflict that the idea of partition, uh, didn't start in 1993, uh, with the Oslo Accords, uh, despite what people uh, may think these days uh, about how Oslo failed or didn't fail or all those arguments that we hear uh, in our current day, uh, but that all of these committees and commissions and conferences going back now many decades all came to the same conclusion. So uh, those were my two kind of big takeaways uh, from being reminded yeah. of this history. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. The, the 1937 partition plan really is kind of the, the, the ideological template for every subsequent partition plan, whether that's the, the UNs of exactly 10 years later, really up to our present day. Uh, but I think in terms of, um, you know, in terms of sort of the, 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 the legacy of this revolt and the, the echoes of this revolt, with a particular emphasis on the Israeli side, I, I might give a different answer if I were on, you know, Palestine uh, policy forum podcast. But mm -hmm. uh, I think there's, you know, I think there's still a debate on the Israeli side about uh, restraint versus retaliation. I think uh, restraint versus revenge, even. 
Um, this was this was a huge bone of contention during the revolt between Ben Gurion and and the, the, the right wing revisionist Jabotinsky uh, Irgun movement. Uh, there's still there's still a debate over what it means to have Jewish military power, Jewish sovereignty. I think there's still a, a heated debate over purity versus pragmatism. Um, you know the, the 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 value of the land, the entire land versus uh, democracy or demography. Um, so in in all of these ways, I think for for Palestinians as much as Israelis, uh, for Israelis as much as Palestinians, this this revolt very much rages on. Uh, very much so. Very much so. Uh... And I jotted down one quote from Ben Gurion, which uh, from an Israeli point of view really struck me. Uh, and hopefully you don't mind me reading uh, this, this great quote. Uh, so Ben Gurion, in the early days of the revolt, says to his uh, colleagues in the Zionist leadership uh, in, in, in Israel, uh, what will become Israel. Uh, and I quote, the Arabs see everything differently, exactly the opposite of what we see. It doesn't matter whether or not their view is correct. That is simply how they see things, which mm. uh, I thought was very, very appropriate. That Ben Gurion could could even understand the fact that uh, from an Arab, from a Palestinian point of view, uh, things were diametrically different than from an Israeli or Jewish point of view. He was extremely prescient and and far sighted, Ben Gurion, and we can only wonder what what he would have to say if he were if he were still with us and what what he would do if he were still uh if he were still running the show here um he was a supremely pragmatic practical man and i wonder if he would have uh, allowed us to get into this uh, morass that we seem to be unable to get out of <laughs> yeah I, i'm going to venture and say that he uh, <laughs> would not be happy about everything happening here in israel on on a whole host of fronts uh but mm. But that's maybe a, a topic for a different episode. Um, mm. So with that, Oren, thank you so much uh, for taking the time and for writing the book. I uh, really enjoyed it. And I recommend everyone uh, go check it out. Where, where can we find uh, Palestine 1936? So if you're in, uh, well, you can find it on Amazon. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find it... If you're in the U.S., uh, you should be able to find it at, at Barnes & Noble. If you're outside of the U.S., uh, Blackwell's in the U.K. is free free global shipping. Um, anywhere anywhere books are sold, you should be able to, uh, to order it. Cool. Uh, so everyone should go and uh, buy it and, and then read it. But more importantly, buy it. Thanks, Orin. <laughs> Thanks so much, Neri. Bye. Okay. Thanks again to Orin Kessler. Uh, and good luck with the book. You should definitely read it. Also, a special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Eid Mubarak to all those who are celebrating. Just remember, as well, to subscribe. Please leave a rating and comment. That always helps. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>